if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White with my brother, David White. Are you ready for a podcast? I'm very ready, Neil. Great to be back at it doing this podcast. And uh, recently on Facebook, David, we had a giveaway on our Facebook page. If you like the page, shared our post, you had a chance to win a t-shirt and a ball cap. So we have two winners from that contest. Announcing them now, John Kimball and Lee and Rhonda Scott. So congratulations to John and Lee and Rhonda. Uh, They're the winners of our contest on Facebook, but be sure to go right now. Do it right now. We'll wait for you. Go like our Facebook page, at When Art Thou. It's the Oh Brother, When Art Thou podcast Facebook page. Give us a like so you can follow along. Don't miss anything, and you could have a chance to win next time. So that was our contest. David, are you ready to get into this podcast? I think we could do that, Neil. All right, then. Let me ask, Oh Brother... When art thou? Neil, it's May 24th, 1945, and all over Ontario, families are listening as Edward Joliffe, head of the CCF and Ontario political party at the time, speaking via radio, denounces George Drew, the premier of the province, saying, quote, It is my duty to tell you that Colonel Drew is maintaining in Ontario at this very minute a secret political police, a paid government spy organization, a Gestapo to try and keep himself in power. Wow, those are some heady charges there. Um, I can't imagine that the reference to the Gestapo would have gone over very well in 1945. That would have been very fresh wounds. That was a loaded term to use, certainly, and it attracted a lot of attention onto the upcoming provincial election. So this is in Ontario. It's 1945. I mean, this thing isn't. This sort of thing isn't supposed to be happening. There aren't supposed to be secret police. Take us back, Dave, and, and take us to what was going on here. Well, this is an interesting political moment. World War II which was being fought from 1939 till 1945 by Canada, was an epochal moment in Canadian police procedures because the civil rights that Canadians take for granted now were not necessarily always respected vigorously in the atmosphere of wartime, especially in such a global war as World War II with so many repercussions should the Allies fail. I, th- I think that we see that happen with every war, right? Usually civil rights tend to fall to the back burner in times of war. Exactly. Canada, one thing you can say is that war is driven by the federal government. Those decisions frequently, at least, not always, are driven by and related to the federal government simply because it has the power to raise an army, the sole power to raise an army in Canada legally. And that generally when we think of wartime policing and how it 
is changed by the war, we think of the RCMP. But in this case, we're talking about Ontario specifically, and therefore the Ontario Provincial Police. And under the pressures of war, unsurprisingly, the Ontario Provincial Police established a special branch with the job of hunting down any spies or would-be rebels working for the Axis powers who the RCMP didn't catch. That seems like a bit of an overreach almost by the OPP to be taking on this wartime power of fighting against spies. Would that normally fall within their mandate? That's not normally within their mandate. Ordinarily, counterintelligence in Canada is the duty of the RCMP. But it's not like they were just seizing this out of nowhere. The RCMP in World War II was very stretched. A lot of officers volunteered to go into the military during the war, and of those who stayed, obviously counterintelligence became a much bigger duty for them than it had ever been, while at the same time they couldn't just stop enforcing all of the other laws. So they were actually looking for help where they could find it at the time. They were very happy that the OPP stepped up and offered them this theoretically innocuous counter-espionage branch, the special branch. Okay, so the goal of the special branch is to presumably catch German spies or enemy spies in Ontario? That's its goal, and up until 1943, that's what it tries to do. It provides background checks, especially that becomes its most common duty, simply providing background checks for employers to make sure that no saboteurs end up employed in the many wartime plants that were springing up to provide munitions for the military. Okay, so that seems like a pretty important thing to make sure you're doing during wartime and a fairly innocuous thing for the police to be doing. And it is. Overall, the special branch scales down during the war rather than up as people become established in their wartime jobs. There's less need for this kind of background check, and officers who are assigned to the special branch, most of them, are transferred back out once they're no longer absolutely necessary in that role and position. And most of them stay focused on their most important mandate going after anybody who might be supporting fascists or the Nazis or other groups that are specifically Canada's wartime enemies. But one agent goes a little bit beyond that. He gets interested in trying to hunt down communists. All right, so who is that? So his name is Constable Dempster. He's Special Branch Agent D-208, if you want to know his code name. D is in David? D is in David. And he is a firm believer in a variety of right-wing political causes, and certainly a firm believer that communists in Canada are preparing a revolution to overthrow the lawful government and take over and therefore that they're a threat that has to be stopped. But of course, that's not an ordinary position in Canada during the Second World War. Russia, which is communist at the time, was an ally fighting the Nazis 
and most people thought that they were good, thought that this was a good thing, did not necessarily have the strong views which Constable Dempster held about the need to stop the communists. So what does Constable Dempster do? Obviously, he's in a position to sort of act on his suspicions about communists. Well, after 1943, as the special branch winds down, he actually ends up in a better position than he was at the start of the war, because initially, when the branch was larger, he had a number of superiors watching him doing his work, and obviously they weren't happy if he was working on this side project that he believed in, but most people didn't, that wasn't necessarily his job. But as the special branch winds down, he ends up becoming the most senior agent left assigned to the branch just by default, as more senior agents are required elsewhere. And therefore, he has the ability to do what he likes, essentially, more or less, with very minimal oversight compared to what a provincial police officer would usually have. And he starts out simply trying to conduct background checks just like he's been doing all through the war, but specifically warn employers that the men they're hiring are or have connections to the Communist Party. But that doesn't work very well because most employers don't see it as disqualifying. If the police tell you that somebody's a communist, that's a fact about them, but not necessarily something that would keep you from hiring them. So he's frustrated. Frustrated people often do drastic things. What does he do? Well, at this point, or somewhere around this time, it's hard to be specific, he meets a man named Montague Sanderson, nicknamed Bugsy Sanderson because he owns a uh, pest extermination company. Mr. Sanderson is a major um, supporter of the Ontario Conservative Party, which is in power in Ontario at the time. And he also believes that the communists are plotting a violent revolution and wants to be involved in stopping them. And Mr. Sanderson and Constable Dempster start working together. Dempster is leaking information from the police about communist activities to Mr. Sanderson, who's then using them to craft a propaganda campaign against, in theory, the Communist Party of Ontario. But that's trickier than it sounds. And why is that? Well, the trouble is that the Communist Party of Canada had been shut down in the 1930s when it was declared illegal. But rather than simply fading away, they'd gone underground. There were still communists about. During the Second World War, a group of them had become known as the Dominion Labor Party, headed by Tim Buck, who we've mentioned on an earlier podcast. Yeah, great episode that was in uh, episode number two. So if you missed that one, go back and listen to episode two about uh, Tim Buck, a communist party leader who gets shot at in Ontario. So this is becoming an interesting theme on the podcast, David. So uh, yeah, make sure you listen to episode two. Ah, absolutely. It's a great episode. 
So that's what Tim Buck and we might say the main line of communists are up to. But they're actually enthusiastically supporting the war. They're actually supporting conscription at the time, which was a deeply controversial issue, political issue in Canada during the war. So it's hard to paint them as threatening revolutionaries because in a lot of ways they're not. And many other members of the Communist Party or former members of the Communist Party are around and are belong now to different political organizations, but they're not necessarily still communists. And Constable Dempster and Montague Sanderson don't necessarily draw a clear line between ever had any contact of any kind with the Communist Party of Canada, but have ceased that versus still a committed Communist Party member. So the, their propaganda, which they are believe they're targeting at communists, starts targeting a broad variety of ordinary left-wing parties in the province. That would seem to be a problem now. They're, they're trying to target communists, but they're catching up anyone who might have at any time been involved with these sort of left-wing political ideas. Even worse, Constable Dempster's not very good at his job. Actually, he's sort of terrible. So a lot of the information which he's leaking to Sanderson, which is going straight into the press in an organized propaganda campaign, including purchasing advertisements and leaking to friendly reporters, is highly inaccurate, which is a problem for guys like Edward Joliffe, the head of the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which was a political party in Ontario at the time. Eventually, it would become the Ontario New Democratic Party. And if you know the New Democratic Party, you'll know that they're fairly left-wing as Ontario political parties go. Right. So this is the forerunner to the NDP. They're a left-wing party, but they're not radical communists, are they, David? They're not, but certainly a lot of their members either went through a communist phase when they were a member of the Communist Party or possibly were involved with organizations which also included Communist Party funding, especially in the 1930s. That was very common for a lot of political causes, supporting things that today we wouldn't view as controversial, like supporting the Republicans during the Spanish Civil War. A lot of ordinary kind of political groups also had some funding from the Communists, and suddenly they're finding their names associated with communism in the Ontario press, and they're very unhappy. And it's all going back to Constable D-208, who's leaking this information. Exactly. And as time goes by, he actually expands his operation. Uh, Mr. Sanderson is able to introduce him to more uh, supporters of the Conservative Party in various different regards. And he meets a man named Gladstone Murray, who's not technically a politician himself. He doesn't run for office, but he's a very influential funder of the Conservative Party of Ontario. And working with him, they expand again this campaign they've got going on in the press. And by this time, we're coming up on 1945, and with it, the provincial election. 
which leads to a chance for this group of conservatives to step up their efforts to, as they see it, identify to the public people who they suspect are communists. And they start interfering in the ongoing political campaign in a way that is at the very least ethically dubious and most likely illegal. For example, they plant a series of people with prepared questions at various town halls that the CCF tries to organize in order to try and disrupt those events in order to discredit the CCF, which has very little to do with communism at all at this point, but also raises some serious ethical concerns about interference by a police officer with an ongoing Ontario political campaign. Right. This is the sort of thing that's just not supposed to happen in Canada. Police are supposed to be arm's length from politics. Exactly. So that's, uh, let's say, an unfortunate thing that's happening. Another thing that's happening, which may or may not be unfortunate, depending on how you view it, is that Edward Joliffe, the head of the CCF, receives a leak from inside the special branch. One of Constable Dempster's subordinates in the branch contacts the CCF and tells them that his boss is crazy and deliberately interfering with their political campaign. So the CCF have found out about Constable Dempster. They have. Unfortunately, the subordinate who sends this information is not necessarily the best informed. He's a very recent recruit into the Ontario Provincial Police, and unfortunately he's been working directly under Constable Dempster, who has a certain tendency to exaggerate both his own importance and essentially everything he does. For example, their headquarters are in a apartment or an office building in downtown Toronto, and he tells his subordinates, Constable Dempster tells his subordinates that he has it rigged to blow with a ton of dynamite, and if he ever believes that the communists have infiltrated the offices, he will dial in on a special telephone line, and that will blow up an office building in downtown Toronto. Not exactly somewhere I'd want to work. It's all a lie, of course. There's no dynamite. There's no special telephone line. That's a ridiculous idea. But for a junior OPP constable being told this by his immediate superior, he's just reporting it straight to the CCF without any kind of filter telling them what is and isn't plausible. And they tend to believe what they're told by their police constable, just as the conservatives who Constable Dempster is talking to tend to believe whatever he tells them, whether or not it's actually accurate. And now this complex set of lies is causing a crisis inside the CCF's campaign as they start to panic that maybe they are being pursued by a reckless, desperate man who's making claims that sound increasingly like he might turn to violence, who's backed by 
the power of the Ontario Provincial Police. This can't really end well, can it? Well, it ends with Edward Joliffe, the head of the CCF, going onto the radio when he gets a chance to make a formal accusation in the middle of an ongoing political campaign that the Premier of Ontario is running what, from his perspective, from our perspective, it might look like a little bit of a joke, but from his perspective, is a Gestapo, a organized political police organization, just like I told you about at the very start of this episode. So how do the people of Ontario react to that shocking announcement? Well, the Premier establishes a formal royal commission to get to the bottom of this, the Lebel Royal Commission, but he refuses to delay the election on the grounds that the opposition party shouldn't be able to dictate an extension of a term in office of a government over what it would ordinarily be. So the election goes ahead as it ordinarily would have, and as it turns out, Ontarians mostly don't believe that the Ontario Provincial Police has gone rogue as described by the head of the CCF. So it actually leads to a conservative victory because people believe that the CCF are paranoid and therefore probably not fit to run the province. Do you think that the propaganda that was being put out by these conservatives played into that election result? It definitely could have. And that's one of the problems with trying to analyze an election result from such a distance is it can be very difficult to say to what extent was it dictated by any kind of interference versus to what extent was it dictated by other uh, more ordinary factors. The conservatives had already been in power in Ontario. Maybe it's just the ordinary advantages of incumbency, it can be very difficult to say. Right. So uh, the Royal Commission's been set up. What do they determine? Well, the Royal Commission determines that Constable Dempster has probably broken the law and certainly violated the Ontario Provincial Police's ethical codes. Uh, the Royal Commission doesn't have the power to charge anybody, and the Conservative administration of George Drew decides to merely fire Constable Dempster immediately without bringing any kind of criminal charges. And then the CCF has a disastrous election, not only on the disastrous election cycle, not only at the provincial level, but also at the municipal and federal levels, which actually helps to lead to them changing their name and becoming the new Democratic Party. And George Drew ends up not being the Premier of Ontario in 1948. In an interesting twist, the Conservative Party actually wins not only the election in 1945, but the election following the Royal Commission's report in 1948. But George Drew, their leader, in a very rare event in Ontario political history, actually loses in his riding to a challenger who the CCF very vigorously backed even though he was not a member of that party because they did not like Colonel Drew as you may imagine after all of this and then he went on to be a leader of the federal progressive conservatives of Canada 
party briefly. And then after that, it turned out that although at the time he'd been cleared by the Royal Commission from knowing anything about Colonel Dempster's activities, when his records were released to the public, his uh, official records of uh, service as premier, it turned out that actually Gladstone Murray had told him about this police constable who was leaking him information and he had deliberately chosen not to know anything more and then lied about it to the royal commission wow so this conspiracy within the opp went all the way right up to the premier well to be fair he wasn't given them orders he doesn't seem to have known essentially anything possibly because when gladstone murray gave him the information which had been leaked by Constable Dempster, he seems to have recognized pretty quickly that this information wasn't accurate, but he also knew of its existence and deliberately chose not to stop it. Wow, that's pretty... Pretty crazy. That's pretty big right there. So uh, thanks for telling us about this story, Dave, about a secret police force in Ontario that was trying to work against radical communists, but ended up really affecting Ontario politics. A secret police force that was mostly one deeply, deeply crazy guy. In a way, it's almost inspiring. One man can make a difference. I guess it goes to show that uh, you have to keep your eye on these sorts of things. It can be just one guy who makes a big difference. Yep. So, David, one historical anniversary that passed recently was the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Amens in France in the First World War. And this was the battle that really started to turn the tide and led towards the end of the war. It was one of the really the start of the end of the First World War. So in memory of that anniversary, Dave, I thought our quiz this week would be a Battle of Amens quiz. Are you up for that? Absolutely, I'm up for a quiz on the Battle of Amiens. All right, so <clears throat> question number one. I've got five questions for you today, David. What is the other name for the Battle of Amiens? The other name? Hmm. It has a, a, a different name as well. It's sometimes known by. A different name. Hmm. You know, I do not know the other name of the Battle of Amiens. Well, it's also known as the Third Battle of Picardy. Hmm. Interesting. So now you know. Now I know. <laughs> All right. How far did Allied forces advance on the first day? On the first day? Uh, if I recall correctly, that would be about 12 kilometers, yes? Yeah, that's actually right on. It, it was over 11, just about 12 kilometers. So pretty good for the First World War where those sorts of advances uh, didn't always happen. Question number three, how many Canadian divisions took part in the entire battle? Well, if I recall correctly, they brought the full Canadian Corps of four divisions to the battle. You're right, there were the full four divisions. Uh, in the first phase, three of the seven divisions involved in the first phase were Canadian. So the Canadians really were the majority share in that first phase of the battle. 
how many Victoria's Crosses were awarded? Of course, the Victoria's Cross is the highest military award in the British Empire. How many were awarded at that battle? Oh, I do not know. Um, I'll guess four. Oh, you're close on your guess. There were actually three given out there. Uh, all two Canadians, actually, from the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Uh, Alexander Breton, John Croke, and James Tate all earned the Victoria's Cross during that battle. Last question for our quiz here, David. How many German soldiers died at the Battle of Amiens? How many German soldiers died at Amiens? Well, it was a First World War battle, so unfortunately the numbers are highly likely to be very high. I'll estimate perhaps 60,000. You're almost there. It's actually 75,000 and 50,000 German prisoners compared to about 44,000 allied losses at that battle so certainly a costly battle as many of the battles in the first world war were as you mentioned so uh, good job on the quiz dave thank you if you want to contact O oh brother when art thou you can email us O oh brother when art thou at outlook.com or you can get us on twitter instagram facebook at when art thou please uh, give us a like and you can listen, of course, uh, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. So listen, like the podcast, and let us know what you like, what you don't like. And thanks for joining me today, David. Always happy to be here, Neil. And thanks for listening. <laughs>